Hi, everyone. Okay, I hope everybody's doing well. Uh, today, we're going to have a privilege of having uh, Pastor Charles up here, and I think it's always a blessing to have um, the elders in our current session um, you know, come here either as guests or um, as a speaker uh, in preaching the word to us so we can get to know them better and also for them to care for us in this way. And today we're going to have Pastor Charles, and uh, uh, later on we're going to have Pastor Brandon at some point as well. But if you can just you know, welcome Pastor Charles up here as he delivers uh, God's word for us. So let's welcome him. Good afternoon, CLC. Okay, I guess. Thank you, Cicely. I guess one person's awake. It's always, a, it's always humbling to come here because I'm always reminded of how short I am after, you know, Pastor Aiden introduces, you know, and I have to lower the mic down, you know, for myself. But it's great to be here with you guys. It's, and it's been, I know I was probably, I was here in December during the ordination service for Pastor Aiden, but before that, I realized I, it's been a while since I've been here and, you know, I'll share the word. And, you know, for me, it's always a privilege to worship with all of you because, you know, there are times when, you know, like I know we're in the process of becoming a particularized PCA church, but, you know, and, and in the PCA, the worship can sometimes be a little, you know, stuffy, right? You got, you know, that's why we're called the Frozen Chosen. But, when I, but coming here, I'm always reminded of my roots, right? Growing up in Korean immigrant church, and there's always, no matter where, like whatever Korean church or, or Asian church you go to, it's the worship service is very Pentecostal and charismatic, and you know it's I you know I was I was very blessed you know just worshiping here. And I'm like you know what I, I probably need to worship here more often because I'm just reminded of my upbringing. I'm reminded of my roots coming here, and so it's always a pleasure. You know, hopefully Pastor Aiden will invite me more. You know, but hopefully, but I guess that will depend on whether I'm a good preacher or not. So we're going to be looking at the Book of Haggai today. So. It's one of my. It's actually one of my favorite minor prophet books because, as as you'll see, I think there's a lot of relevance for today. So we're gonna be looking at the book of Haggai, chapter two, verses one through nine. And so please follow along either on the screen or if you have your own Bibles, feel free to follow along. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And so, this is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. 
and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired, inerrant word. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, it is truly a privilege to, to declare the truth and the realities of Scripture to your people, and especially today with my brothers and sisters here at CLC. Pray that regardless of, of my preparation or, or lack thereof, or, or anything that, that I may say, that ultimately the glories and excellences of Christ will be on display to your people here, that they would be reminded not just of the fact that he came to our rescue as we sang earlier and how mighty his name is, but that he is also humble, that he is also a God who does not distance himself from us or a king who only makes time when it conveniences him, but is a king, the savior, who meets us where we are, who loves us, who wants to know us, who wants us to look to him, not just because he can give us everything, but because he genuinely wants to be with us. So I pray that your people will be encouraged, that they be comforted, if they need comforting. I pray that if there's some brothers and sisters here who may, maybe they become complacent in their faith that, that your word would challenge them to step out of their comfort zones and that you ultimately will continue to let the world know through CLC that you and you alone are the true and living God. Thank you and pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, recently, you know, some of you may have been hearing about what's been going on in downtown in Wilmore, Kentucky, but the Christian blogosphere has been set ablaze in response to what's been going on over there. Now, if you're not aware of what's going on in Wilmore, Kentucky, there's been a revival, or there was a revival, I should say, on the campus of Asbury Theological Seminary. And it started off in, on February 8th, you know, with one chapel service, and the chapel service ended, but none of the students wanted to leave. And so what was originally planned to be like, like a one-hour like service ended up turning into a two-week revival where thousands of people, not just in the city of Wilmore, but people across the country, literally, they came to the small city of Wilmore. They were lining up outside the doors of the church, of the chapel. And... You know, and it just kept on going and going and going. Everyone kept on, you know, praying and singing, and people were, you know, repenting, and it was, and you know, people were talking all about it. It was like the rate. If you if you want social media, maybe you, you maybe some of your friends, maybe some of you here. I don't know. Like any of you, any of you, go there during that two weeks. I'm just kind of curious. Okay, yeah. So, but yeah, it was it was a crazy affair. Like even like there were news outlets talking about it, and. Again, like even the the town of Wilmore, they had they made a complaint to the, to the seminary because right there's like it's like a town of less than like ten thousand people, and you got a hundred thousand people coming in there, and so the, the traffic from all the vehicles and all the pedestrians just just outside, they just couldn't handle it, and so 
they had to say official they had to officially close it and so it was again probably a very powerful experience for those who who went who participated who were able to go and people are still talking about it and um, there's even churches right now who are trying to kind of continue on what Asbury Theological Seminary started and many people have been commenting on it many are supportive of it but on the flip side many are critical of it because people are saying that is it a really is it a genuine revival is it something that God is actually doing and is is God moving in the midst of those people there or is it manufactured is it something that kind of people just kind of manipulated the situation around them to kind of create the mood and the ambiance and the environment so that it'd be more receptive to the elements of a revival. Now, to be transparent with, with all of you, I'm more on the critical side because I've seen the harm that events like that can do because, and also because scripture is, is clear that one of the marks of true revival is repentance. And so when we look at scripture, we see the Ephesian church, right? If you read Acts 19, you'll see that the Ephesian church, before they came to, to Christ, that they were heavy into to, to the black arts and, the, and magic. And so when they came to faith, right, they burned all, all their books. When Zacchaeus, when he was confronted by Jesus and Jesus said, you know, I'm going to eat in your house today, right? He repented. He said that he's going to pay back what he stole. We see the Ninevites in the book of Jonah when God told them to repent, right? There was a revival. They all repented, sackcloth and ashes, and God saved the city. And so the verdict is still out, and whether this is a genuine revival or not, or whether it was man-made, manufactured, and it was a simulated experience just for a cathartic release, or maybe it was a combination of both, right? But time will tell whether it was a genuine moving of the Holy Spirit or whether it was something that humans created or a combination of both. We'll see as the years go by. Now, Presbyterians, right, we're no strangers to revivals. Or Charles Finney, if you know your 19th century history, you know that he was basically the man behind the Second Great Awakening, right, where he and his method, or the new, the new methods of revivals, where he basically was the leader behind the Second, the second Great Awakening, where over hundreds, hundreds and thousands of, of people were brought to faith. And much of what he did is still repeated in many churches around the world, even to this day. And if you grew up in the Asian immigrant church context, I can guarantee that a lot of what he did and what he tried to incorporate into his worship services is something that, that we still use today. Now, I share all this because when Pastor Aiden asked me if I'd be available to, you know, to preach today, and I saw that I was able to, I was like, yeah, of course. And then he told me that most of the college students are going to be away. And so I'm like, oh, okay. You know, but at the same time, at first I was like, okay, I guess he just needed a break. But then at the same time, I realized that, you know what, this would be a great opportunity to really speak to the, those of you in the young adult and graduate demographic. And so because I know oftentimes, right, the college group, they're the ones who get all the, all the goodies and all the attention, and they, they're the ones who get baby. And, and the young adults and the and the graduates, you guys are usually the ones who have to kind of suck it up, and you, you don't really get all, you don't get the love and the attention 
you know, but, and so today I, I want to give you guys the love and attention. So if you're here, if you're, if you're a college student or if you're a kid, you know, like, like Seth, you know, like, I, th this message is still for you, right? But, you know, but the, this is going to be specifically mainly for, for those of you who are graduates or, or young adults or working professionals. So, and, and again, so as, you, as you'll see, right, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get right into it. So we're gonna, the reason why I bring up revival is because we're gonna see that there's, maybe some of you are in a place in your walk with the Lord where maybe you feel a little dry. Maybe you came to, maybe some, like, because I know that a lot of you, I, I know it's, it was my experience as well, like, I came to faith, like, the Lord saved me when I was in college, through college ministry like CLC. And I know that what I experienced during my college years is very different from what I'm experiencing now, and not just as a young adult, well, I'm not, I guess I'm not a young adult anymore, right? But, but you know, now even as a, as a parent, that's to three crazy girls, right? It's, it's very different. You know, there are times when I'm, I'm like, oh, man, I wish I could go back to the good old days. I wish I could ex relive my college days where I could just be on fire for the Lord and not have to worry about all the cares and concerns that, that I have to now. And so maybe that's where a lot of you are, you know, those of you who are graduates or working young professionals. And so this message is specifically for you guys and girls because I hope that this will be an encouragement in the midst of the season that you guys find yourselves in, not just as individuals, but as a church. Because I know that it's, you know, we, there's, it's still kind of a work in progress. And ultimately the main point, as all of you see, is going to be that having the proper understanding of, rev of revival allows us to be warriors and not warriors. And so I know that, I don't know if it's just my pronunciation, but it's like, like similar pronunciation, but different wording. So oftentimes we tend to worry, right, W-O-R-R-Y. But what I hope that all of you see to the, from the text today is that having the proper understanding of revival allows us to be warriors with an A, like, like you, know, Stephen, you know, Stephen Curry, like warriors, Golden State warriors, and not Worriers, like concern, worriers, anxiety. And we're going to do this in three points like we always do because we're faithful to the Reformed tradition, right? So who are the voices we are influenced by? What are the visions we are invested in? And then thirdly, staying rooted in the vow imparted to us. I know that third point might not have a nice flow as the other two, but I wanted to keep that the V and the I alliteration theme. So, but who are the voices we're influenced by? What are the visions we're invested in and staying rooted in the vow imparted to us? Now, if you're not familiar with what's going on here, I'm just going to give you a quick crash like course on uh, kind of like what's happening here in the book of Haggai. So the Israelites right there, basically, they came back from, they came back from Babylon. They're, they spent 70 years there because of their, their refusal to repent and turn to God. They were worshiping idols, and so the Lord judged them through the, the Babylonian Empire. And so now they're back. Right, they spent 70 years in Babylon, and now they're back. They look at where they are, they look at Jerusalem, and, and they see that their temple is in ruins. And so they had the task of rebuilding the temple and also rebuilding the wall. And so they're susceptible to attack from everywhere. And if, you, if you're familiar with history and if you're familiar with geography, you know that Jerusalem is basically the crossroads for where all the ancient empires were. And so it's basically matter of time before they're going to be attacked by the next enemy. And so the, their situation is dire. They're trying to figure out what they're going to do. 
because they're trying to figure out who they are, right? They were displaced for 70 years and now they're back and now they're trying to figure out, okay, is God with us? Are we God's chosen people? Are we still on God's mission or are we basically the rejected now because God doesn't love us anymore? Because it's clear that what we used to have is not the same as what we have right now. And so the Israelites are trying to rebuild their lives, their identity, and Haggai is speaking a word from the Lord to them. Now, many people assume, right, that prophecy or prophetic books are just merely fortune-telling. So when we read the, the prophets, most people, our default instance is think, okay, what is Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or in this case Haggai, what are they trying to tell us is going to happen? But what I wanted to kind of remind all of you is that prophecy is not just about fortune telling. That's one aspect, yes. But prophecy is more than just fortune telling. Like prophecy is not just focused on telling you what's going to happen, but prophecy is also focused on trying to confront you in the midst of false realities. It's a loving concern to tell you what you need to hear and not necessarily what you want to hear. And so what Haggai is doing, he's trying to assert true reality in the face of perceived reality and experiences. In other words, Haggai is not going with the flow, parroting and maintaining a specific ideology. He's not trying to maintain the status quo. He's not trying to maintain American exceptionalism or materialism or Asian, Asian perfectionism or capitalism or socialism. But what, he, what he's doing, he's trying to point out the glaring disparity between expectation versus reality. To put it another way, right, the emphasis of biblical process, prophecy is not necessarily on the task of telling the audience the content of the prophecy, but the focus is on the goal of comforting and challenging the audience to make the content of that prophecy a reality. Because again, the Israelites, they were still recovering from that sense of rejection and trauma, right, after coming back from the exile. And if you had just spent 70 years in another country because your parents and your grandparents' generation, they basically dropped the ball, you're probably wondering, you know, does God still love us? Like, how am I going to settle into this new light, this new situation? All right, and this is especially highlighted in the first chapter where Haggai, is, he's basically confronting, he's calling them out for their lack of faith. Because the general consensus amongst the Israelites was that they did not think it was time to rebuild the temple. Right? If you look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. So they didn't think it was the right time for them to build the temple because they thought to themselves, you know what? I'm not going to spend time building God's temple because I got to get my own house in order. I got to do my own thing. I got to make sure my family's taken care of. I need to make sure I need to do what I need to do to make sure I can survive even. And so they started off strong. Right? They, a lot of them were committed to the building of the temple, but they saw that the glory and the size of the second temple they were building was nothing. Right? In their words, like nothing. And literally that word nothing that's used, it's compared to Basically, like Genesis 2, where it's basically nothing. So it was barren. So it's not even, so even the building is there, but it's so horrible in their perception, in their eyes, that you know what? It's, 
basically it doesn't even exist. It's like, it's dead to me. That's what they're basically saying. That's what they think of it. You know what? This building, this second temple, it's so horrendous that I don't even want to think that it's alive, that it's even there. And so that's what it is to them at this point. They're like, you know what? My time, my energy, my experience is not worth the investment. The ROI on this is horrible. So I'm not going to waste any more time on this. So I'm going to focus on taking care of my needs and my families. And so the Haggai is saying, why is the house of God in ruins while you're focused on the, panel, on the paneling of your houses? Right? You're, it's not, you, you don't just have like regular houses, but you got panels. Like your houses are ornate. Like you're worrying about like whether your house is going to have a deck or if you're going to finish the basement. You're, you got all this attention focused on what you need to do. And on the flip side, as you're looking at this and focusing on this, you're going through a drought, a drought a famine, you got all these other economic concerns, you don't know if you're going to be able to feed your family. And, got, and basically, right, their priorities are out of order. Their priorities were from temple building to focusing on personal and individual economic consolidation and security. And ironically, in verses 10 through 11 of chapter 1, the Lord tells them that the reason why they're in the economic dire straits that they're in is because they got their priorities mixed up. You guys are worried about whether you're going to have the job to finish your house. And yet, if you were focused on the actual things that you're supposed to, you wouldn't be in the situation. And so you see the, the vicious cycle that the Israelites are in. It's like, they want to do what they, want, they can do to help build the temple. They see that it's not, gonna, it's not going their way. They're like, you know what? It's not worth my time and effort. I'm going to focus on surviving. And yet God is saying, these droughts, these famines are happening because you're not focusing on what you need to focus. Now, I want to make it clear that this is not going to be a springboard message on how all of you need to sacrifice your time, your energy, and even your money for the church. That's not what this message is going to be. I want to make that clear. Because ultimately what Haggai is trying to get at is priorities right now. The going, the, going back to the purpose of prophecy, right? You're confronting God's people with the truth in the face of their perceived realities. We see that essentially the people of God were not listening to God. They were listening to the voices of others and of themselves. But they were not listening to the voice of God. They were listening to every voice except the, the voice that they were supposed to listen to, God. Because had they actually listened to the voice of God, they wouldn't be in the situation that they're in. Right? Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verse 27, that his sheep hears his voice, and he knows them, and they follow him. And so for those of you who maybe you're in that kind of predicament right now, where maybe you want to help, you want to donate and sacrifice as much time, as effort and energy you can to the church, but yet something seems to always come up. 
an emergency or your boss calls you on a weekend saying you need a, to work because you need to meet that deadline or a client is being really annoying and they want you to fix this issue that they have and so you gotta take care of it. And so if you could consider the possibility that the reason why you're in the situation you are in and are, you're putting off the things of God is because you are not prioritizing the things of God and you're distracted and tempted by the allure of other things such as work, All right? You need to put in the hours to get that promotion, to get that, to get your name recognized and at least your name into the consideration for, the, for that raise. Maybe you, you're tempted because you just, like you're in, in the midst of a project and, and you, you just caught fire because you, you realize that you need to research this even more. You need to examine this further and you're, you're going down this rabbit hole of where you need to put in the time and you're losing focus on other things because you're so enamored by that project and that research. Or maybe you're in an unhealthy relationship. Or maybe you're focused on your socioeconomic status, how you can increase it, how you can you know, maximize your potential or your ROI on other things. Right? You're listening to the voices of others and not God's. And so as a practical application, I want you to consider the people with whom you tend to hang out with. Right, the podcast you listen to, whether you make the time for reading the word and spending time in prayer, right? whose voices are you listening to? God's or someone else's? Now, I say all this not because I'm in a position where I'm better than you, but I say this because this is exactly what I went through and the realization that I went through recently and even as I was preparing this message. Because to be transparent with all of you, like, most, well, maybe not most, but a lot of you know that I haven't been in full-time, like regular consistent ministry for over a year now. And one of the things that I've realized in my year of, like my year-long sabbatical, if you want to call it that, is that I realized that my, my spirituality, my faith, my relationship with the Lord was, was not necessarily one that was based on a father-son relationship but it was based on a business relationship, like an employer-employee. Like I'm a pastor, and so I have to read the Bible, I have to pray to prepare the sermon, to prepare the Bible studies, to counsel with people, or else I'm gonna be a hypocrite. And during this year off, I realized that one of the, I realized that a lot of the times that I was reading scripture and praying, it was because it was my job. Not necessarily because I genuinely wanted to be with the Lord, but because it was just a job to me. Right? My priorities were on other things. And this became even more clear to me as, because you know, I've been focused on rebuilding my career, like resurrecting my career as a civil engineer. I've been taking remedial classes online. I've been looking at, I mean, I've been going to conferences. Right? This couple of weeks ago, I was at the St. Paul Student Center. I, I was... I finally understand why University of Minnesota, like the mascot is Golden Gophers, because there's all these underground tunnel systems from the parking lot, and it was kind of cool. I'm like, oh, I, I've been here for six years. I didn't know about it until now. And so going to all these conferences, trying to get my name out there, trying to network, and I'm just trying to focus on build my, again, resurrect my career. I'm getting a head start on studying for the professional like licensure exam, exams, which I can't take for another three years, but hey, might as well get a head start. 
I'm looking into postgraduate certificate programs. Right? I'm growing, trying to grow my career as an Army officer. I'm I'm complete, I, I had the time to complete all my professional military education, but I definitely don't have the time to, to read scripture or pray with my kids or to do Bible studies or, or family worship with them. And realizing this, I realized that I allowed my spirituality and again my relationship with the Lord to remain in ruins. Right? I brushed it off with the mentality and attitude of, right, I'll get to it if I have time. Or when my life stage situation is more agreeable. So basically I was doing what the Israelites were doing here. And I was reminded of what, so one of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Watson, he writes in his book, Heaven you know, Taken by Storm. He says that it was easier for Jesus to go to the cross than it is for us to come to the throne room of grace. Right, if you think about it, right? He's, he says, it was easier for Jesus to go to the cross, like willingly, than it is for a lot of us to just go to the Lord in prayer. And if you think about that, that's basically a sucker punch right to, you know, to the gut because I think all of us can agree that that's pretty accurate. Because it's pretty inconvenient for us at times to, to go to the Lord in prayer. And what this reveals is like what, what our priorities are. Where are our energies, our hearts invested in? Right? Which leads us to the second point. What are the visions we're invested in? And so Haggai is, again, he's being tough, but at the same time, he's being tender. Because right, the people finished, they, they build the temple, but they were discouraged. Because a lot of them, who were young enough to remember what the first temple looked like, they clearly believed and knew that the best days of Israel were behind them. And so what Haggai is trying to do here is he's basically challenging, again, like tough but tender, he's challenging their understanding of what, their, what faith is. So I'm going to use a, a big theological word here, right, eschatology. And by eschatology, like oftentimes we think that that's the study of the end times, like, oh, like, are we going to be raptured? Are we going to, you know, is there going to be a 1,000, you know, like literal 1,000-year reign or something like that? Or, you know, so but what eschatology is, is it's not necessarily just the study of the end times, but it's also understanding the end for which we've been created, right, the purpose, right, teleology, again, Sorry for using the, the big theological word, but just to throw it out there. And so Haggai is challenging their understanding of what the people of God, what they believe their, the trajectory, the path of, of human history is going to be. Because it was clear that these Israelites, they were living in the past. Because their eschatology their understanding of what purpose is was that Christianity is basically a movement back to Eden, right? Back to the good old days, back to the way things should have been, right? That was their heart. That was their understanding of what Christianity is. But what I wanted to just say briefly I'm, I'm, is that the, the direction in which God is unfolding 
history is not back to Eden. So Christianity is not nostalgia. It's not about going back to Eden, going back to the way things were, like Garden of Eden was perfect, and so what we, and then Adam and Eve, they messed it up, and so they were kicked out of the garden, and so what we needed to do now is we need to restore everything back to the way things were. Right? That's generally what a lot of Christians believe, that we need to go back to Eden, and heaven, and, you know, heaven is simply Eden, right? back to Eden, back to the way things were before sin entered the world. But what, when God created, created the world and humanity, it, he did not intend for Eden to be the final destination. It was a probationary period. Right? And if you don't believe me, I'll just say this. Like, if you look at the book of Genesis, like Genesis, you know, even verses 1 through 10, you just look, you look at the, the second day of creation. He, there's like five, the six days of creation, five of those days, the day ends with God saying it was very good. The second day, he, the phrase, and God saw that it was very good, isn't there. Because it was a Monday. Right? And no, I'm, I'm serious. Like, it literally says, like, well, I mean, it doesn't say God, hate, God hates Mondays too, but, but at the second day, it says, like, God, even God didn't think it was a good day. Because there's, it's not perfect. He knows that there's something wrong. Well, there's, it's a probationary period. And so God is giving us these little hints that the Garden of Eden was never intended to be the final destination. And so what my seminary professor, what he used to say is that the story of Christianity is from good to bad to better. So the goal was always to get the better. But unfortunately, because of sin, we had to make a stop at bad. But it was always going to be from good, bad, to better. So it was supposed to be from good to better, but because of sin, right? good, bad, better. And so this point is where I want to especially right, speak to you, right, the, the young adults, the working professionals, because most of you probably grew up in a church where you were in a youth group that worshiped separately from your parents. Then you came to CLC. Maybe you got involved in it during college. Maybe the Lord brought you to faith through CLC, through college ministry. And for many of you, maybe your most fond and joyful spiritual memories and experiences have been through either youth group or CLC. Some of you maybe, if it's okay for me to say that, maybe you've been to OIL, you've been to Urbana, you've been through many conferences, and a lot of those experiences and moments that you had is very precious to you. Right? They've been very formative in your spiritual development and growth. Maybe some of you have heard what was going on in Asbury. Maybe some of you are envious of what went on, and maybe some of you are hoping that you can catch what was going on in Asbury here in our corner of Minneapolis. You had a great time in youth group. You had a great time in your college ministry days. And you wish that you could experience those moments again. Right? If you're a big Office fan, you know like there's that scene in the last episode where Andy Bernard, like character says, I wish you knew you were in the good old days when you were in them, right? And so maybe that's how some of you feel about that time in college, when you were in, in, in college or youth group. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, 
is that youth group and college ministries, as we have experienced them, and as we know them today, it's an anomaly throughout the history of the church. And if I could be even more brutally honest, youth group and college ministries that we know them today are, you know, they're very synthetic. It's a, it's a vacuum, right, for, for a lot of us. It's this unique space where it's a very focused and targeted ministry. Right? I'm not, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that they need to be eliminated. I'm not saying your college ministry needs to end right now. Not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying all youth ministries and immigrant churches that they need to end right now. That's not what I'm saying. But what I, what, but what I am saying is that we need to be aware of the consequences of having grown up in that system, in that context, that paradigm of ministry that we are so used to for those of us who have grown up in the Asian immigrant church. This is why, right, 80 to 90% of those who graduate high school and youth ministry don't go to church when they go to college because that experience of youth group, right, that targeted focused ministry, you can't really repeat that, right? and you can't really find that space when you're in college. And that's why a lot of young adults, when they graduate college, that's why they stop going to church, because what they experience in college ministry, you can't really replicate that anymore because now you don't have the time. Because you, you got to work 40, 50, 60 hours, and then when you get married, you're going you're gonna to have to to deal with living with another person. And then as you guys get, you know, go closer together as, as spouses, then you're going to have kids. And so the opportunities to have that same joy, that same excitement that you did when you were in youth group or college, it's not there anymore. And the unfortunate reality is that for many of us who grew up in that situation, who've experienced that, and many, for, like many of us, that was our first exposure to Christianity or what we think true Christianity is. And so that becomes our standard for what Christianity is truly supposed to be. That becomes a standard of what, as long as we do our job as Christians, as long as we do the work, then that's what normal Christianity is. And if that's the case, unfortunately, then what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for failure without realizing it. Again, all of that, right, that becomes a standard. And so in some sense, those of you who are right, graduates, young adult professionals, working professionals, you're in that phase of life right now where you don't have the time right, to really invest in the ministry and so you don't feel that joy, that same excitement. You don't have the time to, to meet with your brothers and sisters. And so you're wondering what's happening as it seems that your spiritual life is plummeting. Right? You don't experience the same joy, that same excitement that you did. And now, coming to Sundays even, and going to Bible studies and small groups, it feels like a chore, a duty, an obligation, and not something that you really want to do. And if that's where you are in your, in your walk with the Lord, right, that tension that you're experiencing, right, that frustration because, again, you're not getting that same high, if I could use that word, that you used to, 
right? That tension that you're experiencing from what you experienced before, like in youth group and in, in college ministry versus what you're going through now on a daily basis, it's that same tension that these Israelites, what they're feeling when they're comparing the first temple to the second temple. Right? The first temple it was all glorious, right? It was made out of gold and all these expensive stones. You got ivory, you got all these expensive metals and precious stones. You got porpoise skin, right? Linings of the tabernacle. All these ornate designs. Basically, the temple is replicated to look like a, a, a little mini world. And then the second temple, basically a box, if you could even call it that. And so that sense of my best moments and experiences as a Christian are behind me. That is the attitude and the mentality that these Israelites were feeling, basically. And maybe that's where some of you are, that, my, that attitude, even that mentality of my best moments and experiences as a Christian are behind me. And if that's you, this is my encouragement to you. That your best moments, your best and productive seasons, and your most meaningful relationships as a Christian are not behind you. Let's make that clear. That your best moments, your best experiences, your best moments, your most precious relationships, that they are not behind you. In those moments where you're despairing, where you're doubting, or even you're despondent because you're just like, you know, maybe I'm not a good Christian because I don't, I'm not in that same mental, emotional, spiritual state that you used to be. Remember that in its very essence, right, the pulse of Christianity is not one of nostalgia. And that the trajectory of Christianity is not a journey back to Eden. Rather, the trajectory is forward to the new heavens the new earth, right? the new Jerusalem. And when you're building and working towards something new, it's going to entail a lot of work because you've got to take out the old. You've got to dig everything out. Your hands are going to get dirty. It's going to be messy. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be frustrating. You're going to clash with a lot of people, a lot of issues and frustration. If you get married, you, you'll like you'll experience that firsthand. When you have kids, you're gonna experience that even more. And if you have three kids, right, you three girls, it's very humbling. Whew. Yeah. And so, in those moments, right when. You're doubting and you're despairing because, again, you just don't have that same excitement that you used to do. The remedy to, like, I'm not going to say it's the remedy, but one of the things that you can do, again, is remind yourself that Christianity is not about reliving your best experiences in the past. But again, it's about going forward. That those moments that they were very precious and they were very beautiful, those relationships you had, they were very meaningful, yes, but it's moving forward. We can't live in the past anymore. You have to move forward because the trajectory that God wants us to be on as his people is not back to Eden. We're not trying to live the good old days anymore, but it's to the new heavens and new earth. 
So I know that might be a hard word for some of you, but that's my encouragement to you. That's my challenge to those of you who may be in that state, in that phase right now, to remember, it's about going forward. It's not about going back. It's not about nostalgia. And this leads ultimately to the last point, and I'll, I'll be quick with this, or relatively quick. So staying rooted in the vow imparted to us. So what I, mean, what I mean by this is that, right, so the Israelites, they want to know. I'm sure that they want to know, okay, what the next steps are. It's like, okay, what are we going to do now? Like, we finished building the temple. It's like a box. It doesn't look as pretty as the first one. It's like, okay, like, what now, God? What are we supposed to do? And so I'm sure they wanted answers. I'm sure they wanted to know, okay, what do we need to do now? Some of you are probably wondering, okay, we're in the PCA. We have... You know, we have some structure and some systems and some collaboration. It's like, what now? What do we do next? How can I commit myself? How can I partner with the leadership, with everyone here? How, what can we do? What's the next steps? And if some of you may know that the, even the vision of, or the, the mission of the PCA, right? The faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, obedient to the Great Commission. Maybe it seems very ordinary and very boring. And so you're like, eh, I don't want to. I don't know if I'm if I'm ready to get behind that. Doesn't seem too exciting, right? And and so that's kind of where the Israelites are here. They're wondering, okay, what do we do now, God? Like, can you give us something better, like something greater, like this something that's more according to our capabilities and standards? And yet, Haggai only says two things. He tells them the task of God's people, and then he tells them the promise of God to his people. If you look in verses 4, 5, and 6, he basically says, be strong. I don't know what's next. What do I need to do? Be strong. Basically shadows of Joshua 1. The people of God didn't know what's going to happen. So they're entering into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River, and now they're going to enter into the promised land got all these enemies that we need to drive out. What do we do? Joshua tells them, be strong. I don't know what God wants us to do now. Be strong. Be strong and work. Shadows of Genesis 2. So Adam and Eve, before the fall... Their calling, their responsibility, they were the priests of God because the Garden of Eden was a temple of God. It's the first temple of God on earth. So they are God's priests. So they were to work and to keep, right? Those are priestly duties. And so what Haggai is reminding the people of God is that you guys are priests. We are a nation of priests. Work. Work the ground. Right? Even before the fall, even before sin entered into the, world, into the world, work was there. Work was a reality. So work is not, you know, so when we're in heaven, we're not going to just